The first reading that you heard this morning is the prescribed reading on Reign of Christ or Christ the King Sunday, and the second reading is one that I have chosen, backing up earlier in Luke's Gospel, just before the text that we heard. It's commonly known as the Last Supper text. Hear now a word from God to the church this day. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is is it not the one at the table? But I am among you, as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. Oh God, uphold me that I may uplift thee. Amen. Jesus has been so looking forward to this Passover meal. He's planned it out. He's found an Airbnb with the perfect upper room. He's told his disciples to take time to prepare it with what will become the Eucharistic meal. That is the Thanksgiving meal for the church. And maybe he's excited because for the first time in the Gospels, Jesus gets to be the host. In all these other stories, Jesus is the guest. He shows up at other people's tables. A Pharisee here, a widow there, a tax collector there, a scribe here. But here, Jesus is the host. 
which gives him a certain measure of control. Jesus gets to decide when to serve the hors d'oeuvres, when to pour the wine, when to make the toast, who gets to sit where, and who will bless this meal. And like any host who has invited the guests that she wants to invite, Jesus has been looking forward to this meal, which is exactly what he says to them. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you, with you, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. It's that eagerness that is especially surprising to me since Jesus knows exactly what is about to happen. I mean, he says as much at the feast. One of you will betray me, and you, Peter, the rock on which the church is built, you will deny me three times. I have to say, as a southerner with a certain amount of sugary, passive aggressiveness built into my DNA, part of me can't help but read Jesus' words in a more sarcastic kind of tone. Welcome to my Thanksgiving meal, disciples my last Thanksgiving meal, the one right before one of you betrays me, <laughs> Judas, one of you denies me, Peter, right before all of you leave me hanging on a cross, anyone else want to make a toast? I retreat to a more cynical place, not just because of my cultural background, but because it's impossible to square Jesus' actual eagerness in spending time with the very people who are about to disappoint him in the most difficult and costly of ways. I don't know anyone else like that. We all have our limits on what we can tolerate in the closest circles of friends. We all have our limits on what we can tolerate in our extended families. We all have our limits on what we can tolerate at our own Thanksgiving tables. We don't eagerly await feasting with people we know are about to stab us in the back. And yet there Jesus is. Dining with those obstinate disciples who still haven't learned the most basic lessons that he's already taught them more than once at this point. There he is with those disciples arguing again over who is the greatest while patiently trying to teach them a different kind of greatness that comes from serving others. There he is with one who was about to betray and another who was about to deny, most of whom are about to flee. There he is conferring on them a kingdom. What one scholar translates as a power that they do not deserve and probably can't even manage on their own. Why, why does Jesus stick with them? I've never understood Jesus on this point. It's what drove me away from church as a young person, the hypocrisy. We say we believe this, and yet we do another thing. We say the last shall be first, but we encourage each other to get as quick as we can to the head of the line. We say that there is enough to go around, but we fatten up our 401ks before we feed the hungry on our streets. We sing that we Christians shall be known by our love, but in these days of so much division, we really seem to value self-righteousness that lines up with our own preset political views. 
Why does Jesus stick with them? It's an important question, but also reveals a bit of our own blind spot when it comes to our own self-understanding, namely that it is easier to see the deficiencies in others than it is to see it in ourselves. Blind spot is, bias blind spot is actually what psychologists call it. The bias blind spot, the scientifically proven fact that everybody knows that people are biased, but it's just so much easier to see the bias in other people than in oneself. It is easier to see the egregious way that Judas betrays Jesus than to recognize the ways in which I betray him in my everyday living. It is easier to see Peter's egregious denial of Jesus and harder to see my own daily denials of his ways in the world. It is easier to see the disciples flee than it is to recognize the ways that I run from danger that living in his way brings into my life. In other words, if we are honest with ourselves, then we are at least as broken at least as limited, at least as weak, as, at least as these disciples. We are at least as guilty, at least as failed, at least as egregious with our own mistakes, our judgments, our bickering, our fears, as are these disciples. We are no better. Maybe we are a bit worse than these very disciples. On my down days, it makes me wonder if that is reason enough to close up the church. I mean the whole worldwide thing. It takes a lot of energy to build a church, as we all know. It takes a lot of money to keep the buildings from falling apart, to pay a staff, to run programs. We get no money from foundations or corporations. It all comes from our own wallets. Shouldn't we just give away the money to a foundation or something? It takes a lot of time and energy to organize each other's time and energy to respond to the needs of the world and to each other. Why not give that time to some good nonprofits or to our kids' sports schedules that take it anyway or to any number of social groups alive and well in our city? Mostly it takes a lot of heart to abide with each other at a time in our country when people are having a harder and harder time sharing anything with each other in the most basic of ways. On my down days, I imagine how freeing it would be to work a nine to five job. Ooh. <laughs> Worry about myself and not my neighbor. Practice my own self-improvement projects with books from the library or classes from the community college. Imagine that extra time that so many of you would have if you weren't meeting over the best way to change those difficult-to-reach light bulbs in the sanctuary. Or baking casseroles for hungry people you might not ever even meet. Or tutoring children whose education has been chronically underfunded for 40 years. Or organizing our faith community to demand that our city and state budgets put the well-being of children at the front of the line. Imagine all that extra money some of the most generous among you would have to take more trips or save more for retirement or enjoy more stuff 
instead of sending Salvadoran kids to school or building relationships with Native American siblings in Christ or seeing for yourselves the hunger and the injustice that our government keeps enacting on the Cuban people. On my down days when the church looks not very efficient, not very effective, not very different from the world, I wonder if we should just throw in the towel. But of course, that's because on my down days, I'm thinking too much about us. I'm thinking too much about myself. I am not thinking about Jesus and the way the power of God has actually found itself, its way into the world. I am not thinking about the way God chose Abram and Sarah in spite of all of their many issues. I am not thinking about the way that God chose Jacob and Rachel in spite of their terrible human foibles. I am not thinking about the fact that in Moses, God chose a murderer with a speech impediment to be the spokesperson for the liberation of a people, or Rahab the prostitute to be the example of faithfulness for a people coming into their own land. I am not thinking about the way that Jesus chooses fishermen instead of Pharisees and tax collectors instead of models of religious righteousness and women who have had five husbands instead of the ones who pass the religious purity test set by the patriarchy. On my down days, I'm thinking about all that disqualifies you and me from righteousness, all that disqualifies us from effectiveness. I think about everything except the actual way that the power of God finds its way into our lives and into our world, which is what makes the power of God, that reign of Christ, the power of God that we celebrate today is the culmination of the Christian year, what has traditionally been called the kingdom of God is what makes that power so alien to everything that we know. Because that kind of power is not built. It is not built on the unilateral kinds of power that we're all learning to see leads to bankruptcy in our country. That kind of unilateral power that leads to mayors taking what doesn't belong to them or presidents abusing power as if any human being is above the law. Leaders of all kinds seeking to destroy their opposition instead of building a world of peace across division. Neither is that kingdom built on a purity of thought or a purity of deed which is actually beyond the capacity of any one of us to achieve. It is not built on ideologically pure platforms as if any one of us was exempt from the biased blind spots that leave us able to pinpoint the specks in other people's eyes while we miss those ginormous logs in our own. No, that power is built on the love of God. Our only hope for community, for abiding with each other, the love of God that we see most radically in the community that is made possible, not by our perfection, not by getting the most seemingly perfect people in the same room, but through the radical forgiveness of God that is extended to the world, not because you or I deserves it, but because God isn't through 
with any of us yet. That's what Jesus says to Peter. Did you see it? I have always focused on Jesus' words to Peter as exceptionally sad. You will deny me three times, Peter, and as a judgment on Peter's character. Peter, that sad hypocrite who says he is willing to follow Jesus to the end right before he denies him three times. I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, Jesus says. And I always read that to mean I've prayed for you that you won't actually do this terrible thing, that you won't actually make this terrible mistake. And yet this time, I saw that Jesus has already accepted Peter's mistakes. When once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, meaning after you have made your big mistake, Peter, three times, after you have turned back to me and reclaimed your place in my way, then strengthen others. Whew. The hard truth, the miraculous thing, the unbelievable thing is that Jesus believes this group is the one that can begin to change the world. These are the people who he believes can teach the world a love they don't fully live. These are the people he believes can teach the world a faith they don't fully trust. And these are the people he believes can bring about a justice they don't fully embody. These are the people, not because they possess greater gifts than everybody else, but because they know themselves to be claimed, loved, strengthened, and redeemed by God. And if that is the true power of God, then it is the very thing that we must continue to announce, continue to receive, continue to steward in the church. That core belief that we have been called to this time in our city, to this time in your life, to this time in mine, not because we believe that we are worthy or special ourselves, but because we see that in spite of the facts, God believes in broken, limited, struggling human beings to be the vessels through which God's healing and help and justice find their way into the world. I saw that in a neighborhood bar on Friday night. I went there with a friend. It had been a wonderful week of pride in our church, so much love flowing in and out of the church from the strong Brown Memorial contingent that stood with build and won commitments from our mayors for millions of new dollars to fund education. From that to watching the front steps get fixed by our trustees who handle so much that we don't even see in this 150-year-old building, to the food I saw headed to people recovering from surgery or welcoming new life or grieving fresh losses, some, some in the same family. In the bar, off the clock, I overheard the young woman next to me talking about troubles with her girlfriend then surviving the murder of her brother, then struggling to get a job that matched her sense of calling, some painful, deeply painful and important human stuff. And through it all, she kept talking about God. I couldn't let it lie. 
You sound like someone formed in the faith, I said, inserting myself into the conversation. Oh, I hate churches, she said, without so much as a pause. They're all judgy and hypocritical. They don't accept me and the people I love. They say one thing, they do another. That's true, I said, but there's also grace and forgiveness and compassion there, at least some of the time. Yeah, she said, I did get Jesus there. I guess that's why I hate the church so much. We just can't ever love like he does. By the way, why do you care? Are you religious or something? <laughs> Not at all, I said. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> Jesus, she said, downing a shot of something. Most of the time, honestly, I told her, I am just as hungry for what you are talking about as everybody else. I told her about our community. I told her about the rainbow flag hanging over the door about the work in the city to get to the root of our crime, which is really about attacking the legacy of white supremacy with purpose and grit. I told her about the grace I had personally received in this place. I said, yeah, we've got hypocrisy. I've got hypocrisy. I know I'm not perfect. Neither is this community. She told me she was going to come visit one day. My first reflection was I was so glad to have a place like this to invite her to. But as I walked home that night through the streets of southwest Baltimore, past the scarred row homes that sometimes still tell the story of our past, other times point us toward possibility, I realized I was even more grateful that I have this place to come to. This community struggling to hear Jesus' radical words, this place to remind me that the fact that the power of God is always sneaking up on us, always working over us in ways that we need together, in ways that our city needs together, in ways that our country needs together. I was grateful for this place where I know Jesus eagerly awaits to share this meal of liberation, this meal of thanksgiving with you and with me.